Let's pray. God, we want to start out this morning by, I want to pray for Brad Strand and uh, for Harvest Bible Church. Lord, we want to lift up that people. Uh, I want to pray for Brad and his family, his marriage, Lord. I pray that it is blessed and that he is enjoying his wife and and, uh, his family is enjoying his leadership and his shepherding. I pray that that is his primary responsibility and he views it that way and he sees his time in the Word as equipping for father and husband. I pray that as a result of that, that his family is getting to know Christ through Christ in some ways being lived out at home. Lord, I pray that Brad is in engaging the word, that he is doing the hard work of poking and prodding and scraping and being undone and wrecked, and that he is being re-engineered and reassembled into the image of Christ, and that that is gushing over onto a people on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays when they gather. Lord, I pray as a result of that, that you are building a people, a word-driven people that are built by the Holy Spirit, not by a man, but like a good gardener that Brad is tending to the garden and that he's planting and others are watering and you're giving the increase. Lord, I pray that whatever way, tangible or not, that we can serve alongside this people, this harvest Bible church people, and that you will guard us from ever having a spirit of um, competition with this church or any other church in this community, that we can truly be shared, or that we can share our Christ, who's so ample, and share our commission that's so awesome, and that we can walk together in a tangible way. Lord, in these next few minutes among this people, I pray that you will take the feeble and do something awesome. pray that you will reveal your glory. pray that you will give us a glimpse of you something awesome that's worth living it for and ultimately for di- worth dying for. Pray for a divine attentiveness. Pray for a divine communication with hearts. Pray that you will change us from the inside out. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I feel like part of my call as preacher is to get the cookies off the top shelf heard somebody say that before and it's kind of a funny way of thinking about really what I'm doing all week long is I'm in the cupboard trying to clamber up the the shelves there get to the the stuff that we can dine on on Sundays and Wednesdays and uh, I have to bad I have bad news for you I can't do that this week I can't do it this week because I think for a couple reasons because what we're going to dine on today aren't cookies and secondly, because you can't get them down from the top shelf. They won't come down. Really, what we have to do is we have to go up to it. So I'm hoping that instead of getting cookies off the top shelf, that I can maybe bend over and you can climb on my back. I can give you a boost up to see something awesome. To see something like I was praying a minute, minute ago, there's something worth living for and worth dying for. Something impractical, but wonderful preaching today on the glory of God. Last week, the message was about glory and, and, and trouble kind of going together. <laughs> that in some weird way, God uses trouble to be glorified and that that's His redemptive pattern. But we didn't define glory last week. So it's my aim this week to engage that. It was my aim all uh, for these last few weeks in preparing for this Sunday to want to define it for you where you could walk away with it contained, put it in your pocket, maybe put it on a little 
sticky note. There's Lori. And unfortunately, I was not able to do that. I've wrestled with a definition for glory. You know, is, it, is it like a widget? You know, I remember hearing about widgets when I was in school, you know, these fictional objects that you sold units of. Is glory like that that we just talk about but we never really see? Is it something that you can't really measure? Does it come in units? Can you touch it? And thinking like a real man, can you eat it? Does it make noise? Is it expensive? I've just really been bathing in this, trying to get my head around it. And I think I would find myself, even after weeks of preparing for this message, that if someone were to ask me in just a sentence to define glory, (laughs) that I would probably be like you, speechless. If we went to another country or another part of town where somebody didn't have some sort of foundation, but especially another country where they have no foundation whatsoever, or you're sharing Christ with them, and you're sharing what it means to follow Christ, and it glorifies God, and they look you in the face and they ask you that question, well, what is glory? You'd probably have that deer in the headlights look, like me. If I were to ask you, when was the last time you beheld the glory of God? I might get a deer in the headlights look also. Huh? I can tell you last time I went to church. I can tell you last time I read my Bible, but beholding, that's a difficult thing, to behold the glory of God. Despite the fact that it's difficult to communicate and difficult to understand, difficult to get our head and our hearts around, it's something that we are supposed to appreciate and be involved in and something that we are to behold if we are His people. I'm reading a book right now, have been reading it for months I'm the worst about starting a book and getting a couple chapters into it and then completing it years later, maybe. This book is by John Owen. He's a Puritan, written in the 1500s, 1600s time frame. He wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. Here's what he says in this book called The Glory of Christ. He says, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight. In other words, in heaven. (laughs) And let's just rephrase that. No man will ever go to heaven hereafter who doth not in some measure behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world. When I read that for the first time, I, I, I swallowed hard. You know, one of those swallows where you hear it gulp. And I, wait a second. What he said was, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ in heaven who doth not some measure hold, behold the glory of Christ here and now. And I heard that and I thought, man, I've been preaching. The first time I read that was about six months ago. I've been preaching for three and a half years. I've been a Christian since I was six, or I began the journey of faith at the age of six. And if someone were to ask me, how often are you beholding Christ? I might have to really think on that. Yet it's something that is to be characteristic of God's people, that we are beholding the Christ by faith. But we can't build a theology off John Owen. I'll read a passage to you from 2 Corinthians. I don't want you to turn there. Actually, I want you to turn to John 12. But as you turn into John 12, I want to share this passage with you. Just listen as you're flipping pages. You can do that. You'll need your Bibles this morning, by the way. You need them every Sunday morning. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he writes these words. He says, And we all, speaking of believers, with unveiled face, 
meaning that Moses had to cover, have a veil covering his face because of the glory of God just in engaging the law. And he's saying, we have unveiled face. If Moses was beaming from the glory of the law, how much more are we going to be beaming from the glory of the finished work of Christ? But he says, we're unveiled face. He says, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image. That is the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. He's speaking of believers that in the beholding of the Christ that we are being transformed from one glory to another, ultimately into the image of Christ. So this thing that just kind of seems optional, the kind of thing that I'm like, man, four years, I've never really preached solely on glory. This thing that I've never preached on, this thing that I've never heard a message just about glory, this thing that if I had my choice (laughs) preaching in John chapter 12, I would just kind of skip right over. Because it's so hard to preach, it's so hard to get our head around and our heart around, is the thing that we're supposed to be doing. It's the thing that defines believers that we're beholding the Christ. And that in beholding this Christ, this thing that's so intangible, so impractical, that we are transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Oh, I think it's worth a morning then. And it may be worth even kind of a difficult morning where you see nothing practical. This is a worshiper's message, not a practitioner's message. Where you see nothing that three steps to a happy marriage, three steps to managing my money. Well, what I hope to do this morning is for us to just behold the glory for a little bit. Because the cool thing about this John passage, this John 12 passage, is that father and son team up to help us understand the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father. In this passage that I'm going to read here in just a minute, chapter 12, verse 27, Father and Son team up to help us understand something that is so critical. Listen to the passage. Now is my soul troubled. This is Christ speaking. Remember, he's speaking in his last week. He's heading toward the cross. He's just identified that I'm entering my hour, my glory hour. My cross hour. He's going to be nailed to a cross just a few days later and he revealing what I believe to be his complete humanity. While fully God, he's still fully man. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? And I believe his prayer begins right here. It's like a Gethsemane prayer. Father, save me from this hour. Like, Father, take this cup from me. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then in response to Christ's heavenward prayer in regards to his hour, there's a earthward response from God the Father. The voice came from heaven. Just imagine the electricity of that moment. If God were to speak right now in an audible way, would you grab something? Would you grab your spouse or your Bible or something? Glory. We would fall down probably. God speaks from heaven right now in regards to this prayer, in response to this prayer, and he says, oh, Ben's insertion. Oh, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said, oh, man, it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. It's funny that some heard it differently. And then Jesus says, oh, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So there's something that happens here in this glory conversation between God the Father and God the Son that's for our sake. 
and that we've got to dine on and something cool is going to happen if we'll take the time to do it. But the bird's eye view of the conversation, Christ prays heavenward, Father, glorify your name in this troubling hour. The Father's earthward response, Oh, I have glorified it, that is, my name. And oh, I'm going to glorify it again, that is, my name. This glory conversation is out loud for their sake and for our sake so we can answer that question when someone says, what's glory? We can turn to John 12, 27 and say, there it is. Who? There it is. Glory already and glory not yet. I'm about to show that to you. The Father has glorified His name, the already glory. We have to climb into that context. We have to stand in Jerusalem and understand the already and the not yet. That's where we're going to go in the next couple minutes. The already glory of that moment. Christ has not been crucified yet. And the Father says, I've glorified my name already, and I'm going to glorify it again in the not yet, in what's about to happen here in a few days. So what we have this morning, first of all, is we have the job of deciphering the already and the not yet. If we're going to get a glimpse of this glory, we've got to understand what this glory refers to when he says in the, essentially, the already and the not yet. First, the legend. We have to build a legend to a map. Turn to John 13. We're going to kind of be looking at a little map of the already and not yet, but we have to have something to help us decipher how is God's name, God the Father, His name glorified. And we want to use John to interpret John. That's the best way to interpret a passage of Scripture. We could just make up some application, but the Word does such a better job of that. John 13, 31, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Okay, so we have to build this legend to this map and understand. Remember, Jesus prays heavenward, Father, glorify Your name. And God responds, I have glorified my name, and I'm going to glorify my name again. So what does Jesus have to do with that? John 13, 31 tells us. It explains that God is glorified in Jesus. We have to have a map to interpret already and not yet. And we have to realize that God does not glorify His name independent of the Son. God is glorified in the Son. So in Christ's prayer, Father, glorify your name, the answer has everything to do with the Christ and what he's about to do and what he's already done. We've got to understand that starting out. So we have to look at the Christ to understand the already glory and the not yet. We have to look at the Christ to understand how the Father responds and says, I've already glorified it and I'm going to glorify it again. So when we look at the Christ, let's first of all start with the already glory. Remember, we're standing there in Jerusalem in the final days of Christ's life pre-cross. We're standing there in the crowd as Christ prays and the Father responds. And you're feeling the electricity of the moment when the heavens speak. And trying to understand what is the already. There's certainly an already in the whole Old Testament. This whole Old Testament that has revealed the Christ and should have prepared a people to go, "Mm, there he is. It prepared some of them, like Simeon, to say, Oh, I'm holding the Christ child. Salvation is here today. I've been waiting for him. It didn't prepare everybody, though. It should have. 
There's certainly an already glory in the whole Old Testament and in God's working among the nation of Israel, but there seems to be something more specific here in the already glory. Turn to John chapter 17, verse 4. Again, we're going to use John to interpret John. This is what's called the high priestly prayer. This is where Christ is essentially offering himself up in prayer, like he's the high priest about to offer the Passover lamb for the, the, to atone for the sins of Israel. He's offering his high priestly prayer, and embedded within his high priestly prayer are these words in verse 4. Christ is praying Godward, Fatherward. He says, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There seems to be an earthly expression there of the already glory. There seems to be a focus in Him taking on flesh. So we're going to say that the already glory, as interpreted by John, in John, is what's called the incarnation. It might be a big word for you. You may never heard that word before. I'm sorry that you haven't heard it before, but you need to know it. I'm not going to use words that you've only heard before, because if you haven't heard it before, then there's something that you need to learn. Incarnation means in flesh. Christ incarnate is God in the flesh. That's the already glory. So if the already glory is the incarnation, then the not yet glory must be what is about to take place in a few days. Where this incarnate God is going to submit to wood and nails and beatings and spit and mockings. That's the glory yet to come. So now that we've built our map, I want to take a closer look at the already glory, the incarnation of Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke is going to be a familiar passage for us, and it really kind of portrays an expression of the beginning of this incarnate God, at least the beginning of His in-the-fleshness. Luke chapter 2 I'll give you page numbers when I can because we're going, to use, we're going to be looking at a bunch of passages this morning. And if you have the English Standard Version or if you're using the, the, the Bible in the pew back in front of you, these page numbers will work. Okay, so page 857. Luke chapter 2, listen to this, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. That might sound kind of quaint. <laughs> Man, that's cool. I like shepherds. I like sheep. They're so soft. You need to realize that being a shepherd is not exactly the cream of the crop. You need to realize that sheep are not exactly the cuddliest, sweetest of animals either. Here on this night, what you're about to see is a glory night, but you're about to see it among shepherds and among other things that we'll see in a moment. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory. Remember, that's what we're after this morning is to understand this thing that's such intense, so intangible, glory. The glory of the Lord shone around them, around a bunch of old smelly shepherds and a bunch of smelly sheep, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A manger, that's where you feed cows. Remember, we're talking about the glory of Christ. We're talking about the already and already we're talking about sheep, shepherds 
and feed troughs. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, isn't that just a weird conundrum? That's another word. I, don't, I think that's what that word means. Where that things just don't fit together? That's a conundrum. There's glory showing up with a bunch of smelly shepherds on a hillside. And these heavenly hosts sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. There it is again. Glory to God in the highest. Revealed to a bunch of lowly shepherds. And what do the shepherds do, man? Remember, they're sore afraid. Imagine at that point. They grab their staffs and they hustle off to, to see the Christ and So they see the Christ, and then in verse 20, the shepherds returned after seeing the Christ. And what were they doing? They were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. See, the glory of the already began this night. So it's appropriate that this night is bathed in glory. This is a glory night. But it's a glory night with shepherds, with sheep. With hillsides, with mangers, with stables in Bethlehem. That's like um, Quinlan. (laughs) Oh, none of y'all are from Quinlan, man. You're going to be in big trouble, boy. (laughs) Poverty. The glory of God shows up in the flesh in poverty. What a surprise glory in a surprise place. Do you smell the smells of cows, sheep? The glory of God and the already is Him taking on flesh and it just doesn't make sense. It's not something that man could conjure up. And if man could conjure up, he wouldn't conjure this up. Man wouldn't make this up because it portrays a God that's just too humble. And too lowly. Man-made gods don't become nothing. Man-made gods don't take on the, the, the flesh of their creation. Man-made gods don't become bond servants. But this God does. The one true God. He took on flesh. And tabernacled is what John 1.14 tells us. Pitched his tent and dwelled among us. That's the already glory that was worth the clouds parting and God speaking from heaven saying, I've glorified it already. It just looked like an ordinary old dirty night in Bethlehem. But that was the moment that God took on flesh. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 on page 1001 of your pew Bible. Remember, we're talking about the already glory of this Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 1, but I want to focus on verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Listen to the next phrase. Through whom He also, or also He created the world. The glory of Christ, the glory is that this creator, the agent of creation. Are you taking this in as you're smelling the sights and and hearing the, seeing the sights and smelling the aroma of stables and mangers and cows and sheep? That he was the agent of creation? 
that the galaxies were hung by Him. That the oceans were scooped by Him. That the mountains were piled up by Him. And yet He took on lowly flesh in Quinlan. That's the glory of Christ. It's a surprise glory. It's one we've got to see. He's the agent of creation. He created swarms of swarms of creatures in the ocean and on land. He created squirrels that fly. And He created some birds that don't. And He created creepy crawly things. And He created livestock that litter the hillside. And yet He took on flesh. That's the surprise glory. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 on page 983. This is in a... a paragraph speaking of the preeminence of Christ in verse 17 says and he is before all things and in him listen to this all things not some things all things hold together this one that took on flesh in Bethlehem and was laid in a manger is the one in whom all things hold together the galaxies the fact that they even glued and stick together is because of this one that took on flesh. The fact that the earth rotates and moves around the sun and it sticks with it is because of this Jesus. The fact that the moon hangs in around the earth is because of this Jesus. The fact that two hydrogen atoms want to hang out with an oxygen atom is because of this Jesus. That's the glory of Christ that if we'll but take a minute to consider and chew on and climb up to the top shelf and peek over, we'll see something awesome worth living for. And a Christ that's ultimately worth dying for. When you realize that the glory of this Christ is that He took on flesh. The fact that you can process that thought The fact that you have neurons and cells that are engaging these truths and that are chewing on them, that are trying to deposit them, is only because of the one in whom all things are held together. Your cells that are teeming with mitochondria, teeming with RNA, DNA, enzymes, proteins, is because of this Jesus. And He took on flesh. That's the glory of God. Of Christ. Not only did he take on flesh, he took on troubled flesh. He took on the same kind of flesh that we have. It wasn't some sort of special divine flesh that's immune to the kind of things that we deal with. His flesh was just like ours in that it decays, it bruised. His flesh was just like ours, this one that cast the galaxies, this one that scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains, bled. And suffered and ached and smarted. Another old-fashioned word. Just like we do. That's the contrary glory of God. It just doesn't make sense. Man could not make this up. This Christ took on the flesh that weeps. And that will die too. 
It just doesn't make sense. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, written probably a thousand years or so before this Christ was nailed to a cross. Now, it was probably 500 years before Christ. I'm going to read something else that's a little bit earlier later. Isaiah 53, listen to these words. Not only did he take on flesh, but this is to give you a sense of the character of that flesh. This is where you're really going to see the contrary glory of Christ. Listen to these words. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He despised and rejected by the very men that he gives breath and life to. That's contrary glory. That's surprise glory. It just doesn't make sense. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Not only did he take on flesh, he didn't take on stately flesh. This living up in a mansion, this born and placed into a gold crib. He took on lowly flesh. Listen to those things. No stately form, no majesty, no beauty, nothing desirable. He's despised, rejected by men, one from whom men hide their faces. That's the glory of God. That's beholding. This contrary surprise glory is to just consider that. John Owen writes these words of what he called the condescension. It's a good word for it. When the transcendent that just speaks... And there's light. When the transcendent that just poof, and there's galaxies and it scoops up oceans and piles up mountains. He calls it the condescension. When the transcendent becomes the incarnate. He calls it condescension. Isn't that a good word? Listen to what he says. He says, but had we the tongue of men and angels. So if not only we had our language, but we had some angelic language. If both of those languages were teaming up, we would not be able in any just measure to express the glory of this condescension. If we had multiple languages, that's the way I feel this morning in preaching on it. (coughs) That's all I got. It feels inadequate. Because if we had every language in the world, it could not express the glory of this condescension. For it is the most ineffable That's another good word. you got to learn it means indescribable. An old-timey word that I own, bless my word now, ineffable. This condescension when God incarnate, God took on flesh and lowly flesh, mind you, is the most ineffable effect of the divine wisdom of the Father and the love of the Son. And it's the highest evidence. Listen to this phrase. It's the highest evidence of the care of God toward mankind. You think God loves man? Look at Jesus. What can be equal to it? What can be like it? It is the glory of Christian religion and the animating soul of all evangelical truth. This carrieth the mystery of the wisdom of God above the reason or understanding of men and angels to be the object of faith and admiration only. A mystery it is that becomes the greatness of God. 
with his infinite distance from the whole creation. That's his transcendence. Which renders it unbecoming of him that all his ways and works should be comprehensible by any of his creatures. It's almost unbecoming that this God, this creator, would take on flesh to reveal himself. And in what we would say is unbecoming, therein lies his glory and greatness. That's rich. The greatness and the glory of God is that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's the already. Now for the not yet, the cross to come. Crucifixion in and of itself damaged no major organs. They nailed wrists and feet. Wrists like right through here, not in the hand like you see on crucifixes and stuff like that. Right here in the wrist. That's the only place that would support the weight of a man. And they would nail through feet sideways. Or they would break legs and pin them like that. They would give them a little stool to sit on. But it would damage no major organs. So death came slowly. And death came over hours and days through shock, overexposure, and what's most likely asphyxiation. Which means they just couldn't breathe anymore. Because the way they had to breathe on the cross is they had to lift their body up to inhale and exhale. So imagine seeing your loved one dying on a cross in front of you over hours and days, just like this, naked. Imagine that shame. That's the glory of Christ. That's the not yet glory that he's referring to here. It's a surprise glory. It's not something that man would make up. It was a very public torture. They were stripped naked and they were subjected to ridicule and mocking by any little knucklehead that wanted to walk by and spit on them or hurl insults at them. The people that he gave breath and life to could mock him while he died naked in front of friends and family. That's the glory of Christ. Listen to this. There aren't really any detailed accounts of a crucifixion, despite the fact that it was very routine. But all the early writers, historians, both Christian and non, they didn't even write the details of crucifixion because they were too um, proper to write it, to write about it, because it was so gruesome. That's the sort of death, that's the sort of glory that our Christ was exposed to. Even the Gospels are pretty brief. All they say is, and then he was crucified. It was too gruesome to write about. But there was glory in that cross as we peek over the top shelf. Surprise glory. Not a glory man could conjure up. But a glory that only a God could design and only a God could complete. Turn to Psalm 22. This is the passage that was written about a thousand years before our Christ was nailed to a cross. Listen to these words and see if they don't have to do with the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Listen to this next sentence. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The glory of Christ and the glory of the name of the Father and the not yet of that passage in John chapter 12 is referring to Christ becoming a worm on that cross. That's surprise glory. Man couldn't make that up. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. And here's what they say, those mockers. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Stand on Golgotha and listen to these words. This is beholding glory. If you're thinking about lunch, you're not beholding the glory of this moment. Stand on Golgotha and hear these words. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. You hear him? You hear him being poured out like water? And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. The most terrible shame that a human could be exposed to was the most glorifying hour of this Christ. This glory hour, this glory work, was in this moment, ultimately. The not yet was on this cross. As our Christ entered His troubled hour, His heavenward request was, Father, glorify Your name. And the response from heaven, the Father was, Oh, Son, I have glorified it, and you taken on stinky, Smelly, Bethlehem, manger, shepherds, sheep, cows, bleeding, aching, smarting flesh. And I'm going to glorify it again on that gruesome cross. That's beholding glory. So what are we to do with this? First of all, we're to see the contrary glory. We're to peer over the top shelf, which I hope we've done that in the last few minutes. But what are we to do with it? Do we just peek over the shelf and then just go home? 
eat lunch and forget about it, or do we do something with it? I'll offer that there's two appropriate responses to glimpses of glory. Here's the first. Glorify Christ and the Father by magnifying God. Turn to Psalm 19. Just a few pages before we just read. Glorify Christ and the Father by magnifying God. Listen to this passage in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above, or in other words, in other translations, says the expanse proclaims His handiwork. Remember, we're talking about glory. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge about that glory. Have you ever thought about what a waste? Man, billions of years of light years worth of galaxies? Didn't he kind of overdo it? I mean, all we need is just about as far as we can see with our eye, and then we can trust that that's pretty big. It's pretty, you know, we're pretty small. <laughs> but billions of years worth of light years, now that seems a little bit excessive, but not in view of this. Not if the expanse proclaims his handiwork. Then every single light year of those billions and billions of light years is for a purpose. It just begins to scratch the surface of glorifying this God and giving us an image and a picture of the glory and the expanse and the transcendence and the wonder and the splendor of this God. So how do we respond to that? Okay, that's a cool image. I can go out at night and I can look up to the heavens and I can see, boy, God is big. That expanse declares His glory. So what do I do about that? What you do about that is you become a telescope. You become a magnifier of that glory. I don't mean a magnifier like a microscope. Because a microscope takes something tiny and it amplifies it where the naked eye can see it. Our magnifying glass is the same thing. You know, it kind of brings it into view. Or reading glasses, you know, it kind of brings things into view. What I'm talking about is a telescope that gets a glimpse of something huge and awesome and wonderful. And it brings it into view. That's our call as the people of God. That's what magnifying God is. To bring a wonderful, mighty, incredible work into view. That's the call for the people of God. It's the only appropriate response to these glimpses of glory that we get. To magnify what seems obscure. (laughs) Orion, Pleiades, who cares? Jupiter, I know it's out there. But to actually see it and to stand there behind the telescope and go, wow, that's awesome. To take what seems obscure and hard to see and forgotten and irrelevant and to illuminate it, to amplify it, to capture it somehow and to bring it into view where day by day with our lips, with our loves, with our pursuits, with our relationships, with everything that we are, our lives are saying, look. Look how awesome that Jesus is. Look at this gospel. We're to be a bunch of gospel-oriented telescopes pointing toward the heavens of glory. All day, every day. That's the only appropriate response for the people of God. We magnify Him by enjoying His finished work out loud like talking telescopes, helping things that appear small look like they really are huge and magnificent. The second thing, turn to 1 Peter. 
I want to prepare you. People will tell you when you're preaching, don't ever let people know that this is your last place you're going. But I'm telling you because I want you to pay special attention. Not so you'll disengage and gather your gear and start thinking about lunch. But so over the course of what is a lofty message, you can go, okay, I need to regroup. I need to hunker down and I need to get my mouth around this. This is one of those truths right here. I'm going to introduce you to a word that I made up, but not till I read this passage. It's not in this passage, but it comes from this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Oh, let me give you a page number. 1014. Though you have not seen him, now he's writing to believers. Believers later on in the New Testament story that had not seen the Christ. They're scattered all over the Roman Empire. They hadn't seen him physically with their eyes. Now, Peter had. He's writing to the ones that hadn't seen him, and he says, though you haven't seen him, guys, so he might as well be writing to us, unless y'all saw him this morning somewhere. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's not writing about something optional here. He's writing about what is characteristic of those who are being saved, who are obtaining the salvation of their souls, is that they have a joy that's inexpressible, and that that joy that's inexpressible is like a big old bucket. Let's make something big. A bucket full of glory. Look at what it says. You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. There's the bucket, and it's filled with glory. The vehicle for glorifying God is enjoying God. It's exactly what Scott was talking about at the beginning of this worship time this morning. Enjoyment of Him is not optional. It is a vehicle for glory. God is glorified when we are enjoyifying Him. There's the word. Glorification means enjoyification. To bring glory to Him is to bring enjoyment of Him. To him. That's what our call is as the people of God to be a bunch of telescopes that are magnifying and be a bunch of smile, smiling, goofy faces like Mark on the front of our bulletin. Enjoyifying him. Like, man, I can't believe how awesome this gospel is. I can't believe how awesome this Christ is. You might be sitting here right now and you're like, man, I appreciate that. I see that. I see the bucket and I see the, the, the glory in the bucket. But, man, I'm kind of enduring him, you know. I kind of endure church. And, you know, I read my Bible, and it's kind of like, well, it's kind of a duty. I, you know, I can't really say there's a lot of enjoyment there. If you're not enjoying this Christ, then it means you're not beholding this Christ. Period. Because to behold him is to enjoy him. But beholding him is hard work. You've got to sit at the feet of teachers and preachers who week by week are unpacking this book you got to take this book between Sundays and between Wednesdays, and you got to gnaw on it. you got to feed it to your families. you got to take little old pitiful things like the shepherd's guide, fathers or functional shepherds, and take it home and break that book open. If you're like, man, I don't really have any enjoyment of God, it's because you're not beholding Him. And beholding Him is hard work. It's because the world is saying, behold me. You deserve a break today. Come get a cheeseburger. That'll make you happy. 
That's what the world's saying all day long. And the reality is this is the only place that we're going to find enjoyment, true enjoyment. I'll leave you with another quote from John Owen. It's kind of been John Owen morning, so we'll end on a John Owen note. Listen, don't gather your gear up. Listen, I'm going to train you all tonight. Not gather your gear up. Listen to this. It is a woeful kind of life when men scramble for poor perishing reliefs in their distresses. In other words, what I was talking about last week, medicating with stuff, food, shoes, shotguns, <laughs> picking on women and men. It's a woeful kind of life when men scramble for poor perishing reliefs for their distresses. This glory of Christ is the universal remedy and cure, the only balsam for all our diseases. Whatever presseth, <laughs> here's some F's, whatever presseth, whatever urgeth, whatever perplexeth, if we can but retreat in our minds unto a view of this glory, if we can but go there to a stinky stable, if we can go to a cross and watch Him essentially just stop breathing, if we can watch Him bleed, if we can but retreat to that view of His glory and a due consideration of our own interest therein, <laughs> figure out how we factor into that image, and comfort and supportment will be administered to us. That's rich. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for purchase. I pray that you'll take feeble words from a feeble man, that you will expose your awesome word, and that it will find a home in people this morning. I pray that someone will engage these truths this morning and will have a higher view of you and your plan, greater adoration for Christ, and a more accurate view of where we are, or who we are and what we, where we fit in. Lord, I pray that the result of that will be richer, higher, deeper, longer, more robust worship. I pray that we will be more responsive in engaging you, that we will be more captivated with you, that when we'll sing, we'll sing louder, that when we study, we'll study harder, that when we minister to each other in the name of Christ, that we'll minister more thoroughly, that when we're pursuing you, we'll pursue you harder. Lord, I pray that these lofty truths, these lofty glories that deserve to stay on the top shelf will be something that will transform us from glory to glory into the image and person of Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we've had together. We worship you now in song. Amen.